0: Welcome, everybody, to Peak Curiosity. I'm Abigail. Today I have a very special guest, Allie Van Den Herrick. She has just published her first book called The Shortest Sleep The Rational Underpinnings of Faith in Jesus. Go check her out at the interwebs at shortasleep.com. In the meantime, hope you enjoy the show. with, can you just introduce yourself?
1: Of course. So my name is Allison Vanden Herrick. I go by Allie, or A-L, when it comes to my book. I am 52. I am a mother of two, a wife of one. Ha, thank goodness. And then, um, let's see, my husband is Mark, and my kids, Hannah and Willem. Um, we live in San Diego. And which is where I grew up. I'm a actually fourth generation San Diegan, which is pretty rare. Those Wild West ancestors. Um, I think that's the main stuff about me. But yeah, I became a Christian when I was 30, so late in life. And my dad, who had been a Christian since I was two, was praying for me that whole time, but I would have nothing to do with it. So you would call me um, basically a Christian who came to her senses, or yeah, somebody who recognizes how they were wayward for so long. And thank goodness. God opened my eyes. So that's um, a little bit about my background in a nutshell.
0: So for every interview, I ask a couple silly little questions just to get everyone good and comfortable. So my first one is, what's your favorite animal?
1: Oh, wow. That's a hard one because I just love animals. I'm going to have to say my dog Coco is my favorite animal just because it's <laughs> I have a personal relationship with Coco. <laughs> But, I mean, I probably would choose a different animal, like a lion or something, if it wasn't personal. But, unfortunately, um, no personal relationships with any lions. But, yeah, my dog Coco is proof to me that there is a God. Uh,
0: next question. What's your favorite article of clothing?
1: Ooh. Hmm. Article of clothing. Well, you know, it's, that's a good question. It's kind of changed over the years. But if you could just, like, look over the, the, the span of my life, it would be a coat which is really funny because I'm from San Diego, and you never wear coats in San Diego.
0: So where did you go to college?
1: I went to Stanford. That was the only place I wanted to go. So um, I did apply to UC schools just as a backup. But um, fortunately, yeah, I got into Stanford, and it was perfect for me at that time.
0: Nice. And you majored in biology, right?
1: Biology. Yeah, I was actually planning on being a doctor wanted to be a doctor since I was a little girl. Hmm. Yeah. I was thinking, okay, what can I do that will help a lot of people and be impressive, make a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> and that I could do easily. Cause I, you know, I, I was always really good at science and math. So it just seemed like doctor was obvious. Hmm. So. Any
0: particular type of doctor or were you just going to find that out after you got there?
1: Yeah, no, at first I wanted to do brain brain surgery. I just find the brain fascinating. So my original plan was to do neurosurgery. But I changed my mind so much over the course of the year. You know, you talk to different people about different specialties. But I think that the, the brain was the most interesting field for me. However, uh as time went by, it started to make me a little afraid that I would actually be, you know, just the difference between like uh nanometer of brain surgery can be like somebody being fine and somebody being unable to think. So it started making me feel right. fear for my future. If I, and now I know I just, I'd make a terrible doctor for that reason because I just am, I'm such a people pleaser. I have to be, I would be so stressed. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't be able to sleep.
0: <laughs> if that kind of responsibility yeah. were on my shoulders. So give me a little bit of background about how you became a Christian and was your conversion drastic? Like, did you never swear again or something silly like that?
1: Yeah, I no, mean, that's a really big question. Um, so it was drastic in a lot of ways, but a lot of ways it wasn't very slow. Because um, I can look back and I see people in my life over the years that kind of changed my mind just a little bit about Christianity. So I went from like really thinking it was complete... You know, fairy tale BS—just believe it because you want it to be true, type of thing. To thinking it was actually pretty admirable. Like I remember one of the guys that uh, one of my idols before I became a Christian was love relationships, and I never sure. had a successful one until my husband came along. But it was just constantly like loving someone, hating that person, loving someone—I <laughs> was just completely a mess. But one of the guys that I had this type of relationship with was Catholic. And I remember thinking, hmm, that kind of interesting. I don't know if I, but, you know, he was a really great guy in so many ways. I'm like, okay, I'll I'll put up with the fact that he's Catholic. And just as I got to know him, and he took me to church a few times, and I thought, this is actually really nice. Look at all these happy couples with their children. And I'm like, well, this might be, you know, I can do this. So it wasn't any, ever about the actual beliefs. It was more of a lifestyle thing. And I think there's a lot of Christians for whom it's mainly a lifestyle thing, and Um, They grew up that way, whatever. But that was my initial attraction. And so I would say he was probably um, one of the earliest times I actually considered, well, maybe I could do Christianity. Um, And then I think it was like two years later, after that relationship, and I was traveling in Rome. And I, I had just finished reading a book, and then I realized I didn't have anything to read, so Bible and the, the Bedside Table came to, uh, to mind. And fortunately, it was just the New Testament, not that I wouldn't have read the Old Testament, but sometimes I had read the Old Testament before, and I just thought it was kind of strange. <laughs> I love it now, but back then... So long story short, in Rome I read the New Testament and I originally started reading it in Italian. Because one of my years at Stanford I spent in Italy, so I had a little bit. And that's what made me decide not to be a doctor, by the way. <laughs> like thing in business, international business. So. so I digress. I read the New Testament, started in Italian, and then I realized that I really wanted to read it in English, because it would be so much easier. And so I ended up reading it and my cousin and I were traveling at the time up the coast of Italy and we ended up in uh in Nice we were on the beach in Nice and I shared this on the Babylon <laughs> <Peapock. Yeah. laughs> I was just reading the bible I was just I couldn't put it down I mm-hmm. was so excited like wow this is all kind of coming together for me it's cooking I really was fascinated so it just was ironic that I was laying on the beach I actually found a picture fortunately it wasn't it was it was very innocent it was <laughs> appropriate <laughs> But I definitely had the Bible in my lap and had uh, my bathing suit on. And it just made me realize, like, oh, my gosh, the the Lord has such a good sense of humor. I mean, it just cracked me up on the beach reading the Bible. But anyway, so soon after that, I sent an email to my dad, which was probably right when email was beginning. As I think about it, I'm like surprised. Yeah, I I was an early adopter of technology. So I think I was emailing my dad and I told him that I think I invited Jesus to come into my heart, dad. And it was like one of those things where I'm like, knew he would be super excited. But I also wasn't really sure if it was true. Like I didn't want to say that and get him his hopes up. So I was in that weird period. But soon after I kind of realized it was true. But the changes in my life were very gradual. And like, well, the first thing that started changing was my relationships with men. I started to realize that was an idol I don't think I realized that within the first year. I started over time realizing that was an idol. It was my way of trying to find significance. Um, I also realized my career was an idol, and I was way too stressed about it, and I should just let it go. Um, And then I also changed my appearance. I mean, it's funny. I used to be so into fashion. I actually really wanted to work for, like, uh, Giorgio Armani and, you know, all those Italian fashion designers changed my mind about business or uh, medical school went to business school instead and I remember thinking oh I really want to do that I just love fashion and now I'm like if I get like a t-shirt and sweats on I am like really happy that I'm like dressing up like have I have no interest in dressing up? I just wear like sports clothes every day so it's kind of interesting how that has changed and also my appearance in general interesting and thank goodness the Lord saved me before I got married. I mean, I have friends who got married and then were saved. So when you're married to an unbeliever, it's, it's not easy, I think.
0: So your book, I have it right here. It's called The Shortest Leap, The Rational Underpinnings of Faith in Jesus. So I got it on Friday. It's 750 pages oh. long. I am 450 pages in. So I've been cramming. Oh, no.
1: I'm so impressed. That's (laughs)
0: awesome. It's like, got to prepare for this interview. So I thought it was so funny. I heard you on the B and you said that you abbreviated your name just to make sure nobody would be offended that you were a woman. It wouldn't be a stumbling block. And I thought, wow, she's so not bitter. And I would be so upset about that, like even being an issue. But then later, I was recording a podcast with one of my friends about books, and then I realized, I often don't even like Christian books by women. I'm the problem, so... <laughs> no, I'm the
1: same way. I started thinking about that. You're right. Most of the books I read are by men, and I don't know if that's because I, I don't necessarily think that books by men are better, but I think the types of books that I was using to research for this book were mainly by men. But I do think that it comes to mind, like when I think of a Christian book by women, I think of more relationships and, you know, how to be a better wife and how to raise your kids. And there are, in fact, um, I was in talks with one Christian publisher it, 10 years ago. And it just shows you how long I've been working on this book. I thought I was only three chapters away from finishing, but that those three chapters turned up, turned into like 15. So
0: <laughs> I actually had a lot
1: more. But anyway, we were in discussions for a full year. It was so frustrating because they'd be like, oh, we have another meeting next week to discuss it and we're still interested and. Um, and it came down to the fact that I was a first time author, which is, is an issue. I mean, it's really, really risky business publishing. So they decided they wouldn't go with me, but the suggestion, which was well received, but their suggestion was like, you got to find a target audience. And since you're a woman, maybe this can be a book for, um, mothers and, and how they can explain the gospel and evidence for Christianity to their children. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And I was really going to take that path. I I thought it was a fine path. And there's actually been a book, a very good, well, good, what's the right word? Best-selling? I don't know if it's best-selling, but (laughs) well-selling book on apologetic mama bear apologetics, I think, is, is really doing well. And it was pretty much the type of book that I was thinking about doing. And I'm really happy for it. I haven't read it, which of another example of me not <laughs> maybe staying away from those types because yeah, I just wanted to be a woman and choose what I want to write. Not just because I'm a woman, but anyway, long story short, I decided just to stay with the general book for all people. Like I'm so bad. I'm, I'm in marketing, my profession. And in, in marketing, you're supposed to like get your niche, target it well. And I'm like, you know what? This is for all people. I want anybody who has a brain who wants to know that their faith is not just mush <laughs> you know and a lot of people don't need to know that it's rational that that's fine but there's a lot of people that do want to know that that they they're not just believing because they want it to be true because um, especially in this world there's so many just messages that you hear that are like what you're a christian what, are you a complete idiot like <laughs> It's just so ridiculous. It makes me mad. So this was a book that I wanted to write to anybody who um, is a thinking person. So if you have a pulse and your brain is working, then yeah, and you're willing. That's the problem. If you're willing, you should read it. If you're not willing, then nobody's going to want to read it. I mean, that's that's God's role is to make you willing.
0: Yeah, and it is easy to read. The chapters are short. (laughs) They are concise. Good.
1: That was, ugh, that was my biggest concern. Cause I've read a lot of apologetics books that I thought were not easy to read. And I'm like, if it's not easy for re- me to read, and I know that I've just done a lot of research and it's, it's not going to be easy for the average person to read because, you know, I've had a lot more experience with the, with the topic. So when you're writing it, um, when I was writing it, I really had a hard time, like, is it easy enough for people to read? Because it's so hard to evaluate your own writing. It really mm-hmm. is. It's hard to say, well, this is easy for me to understand, but that's because I have so much background knowledge already. But for someone who's coming from, you know, the blank slate, maybe. Uh, so the, anyway, that's very nice to hear. I'm so glad to hear it. Yes. Find it easy.
0: So a lot of people might consider, especially conservatives, would consider, like, if you're teaching kids Marxism or communism, that that is brainwashing.
1: So Mm -hmm. how
0: is teaching theology and apologetics not brainwashing?
1: Well, first of all, I don't necessarily think teaching Marxism and communism is brainwashing. It depends on how you're teaching it. But if that's the only thing you're teaching them and you're saying that this is the way and this is how the world should work, that would be brainwashing. And that's happened in so many, you know, the, the Russian Leninism, Stalinism. Is Nazism and it's happening today in, in North Korea and in China to a certain extent. But when you're teaching children different ways of, of thinking about the world, whether it's science or philosophy or political science, I mean, I think that's not brainwashing. That's giving them an understanding of different ways of looking at the world. So with Christianity, I think that's just one more way to make them aware. And I, I mean, that's why I think it's like all truth is God's truth. And I said that before I just anything you study um, shouldn't negate Christianity. It should support it. And I found that that to be the case. If Christianity truly is true, there shouldn't be any other philosophy that would make it untrue, I guess. So, yeah, exposing kids to all of the philosophies and to evolution, even. And I talk about that in the book. I mean, there's no reason that somebody, you know, unless it's a philosophy of life where there's no meaning and it just happened by accident. That's completely, that's uh, bogus. But evolution is a way that God worked in natural history, and whatever guided the development. That we shouldn't be afraid of our kids learning about that. You know, it, what we should be afraid of is them not learning the counter arguments. If uh, the teachers are saying, "Well, this is exactly how humans came about. We don't need a God," and that's you know that's what they're trying to do in the public schools Mm -hmm. so countering that with a christian side was saying well god could have used that as a way i mean he's a guy he could have like created us in two seconds if he wanted he's that powerful but he may have used a process over millions of years which for him is nothing the time is so relative especially talking about the creator but um I would suggest. Anyway, I'm going off on that tangent. I don't necessarily think your question had to do with that. But um, but yeah, brainwashing <laughs> basically is only when you want them to believe a certain thing and you don't give them alternative perspectives. But I don't think that's what we're doing when we teach kids theology.
0: Good answer. Uh, that, that was a test. So you said that you started writing this book pretty much as soon as you became a Christian, and that was 20 years ago, so this has been a long process.
1: Yeah, yeah. I became a Christian in 1998, so 22 years ago.
0: So what did you start with? Uh, Well, it was
1: always this. It was always kind of a one-stop shop, because I was hearing at church about all the prophecies being fulfilled, and then I also heard a lot at the church about um, historical evidence for the resurrection and... I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And then I was reading books because I love science about evidence for God for the for world. And, you know, just to, all these things over the first year of becoming a Christian. And I was just like, why why isn't there one book, you know, that can just boil it down, you know, succinctly. I just love the idea of distilling, like uh, this big vat of water, and you just distill it down it's just the little, little minerals that you need, the only the essential minerals. And so I think of that as what I really wanted a book like that, that would just kind of give it all to me in one place.
0: And the title you chose, The Shortest Leap, explain that, how you got to that title.
1: Yeah, you know what, I'd had that idea just because I was like, wow, the leap of faith into Jesus is still a leap. You know, you can't take that leap without God changing you. And I I sincerely believe that it's necessary for God it's, you know, no, no, amount of evidence is going to convince someone who God hasn't given the will to believe. So um, the idea of the leap is that it's still a leap of faith, but it's not as big of a leap of faith to any other philosophy. I mean, atheism, all other religions, um, even agnosticism, like agnosticism, people say, oh, I don't have to have any faith. But it, when you're an agnostic, you have faith that that truth isn't knowable. That's what your your faith is in, mm-hmm. and that you can't be held accountable for not investigating, basically, that, you know, we just can't really know truth about anything. And I'm like, well, even that takes faith. How do you know that there is no way to find truth? And I think there is, and, and in my book, the um, I, I mean, even just the first chapter, after you read the first chapter, you have an evidence that God exists. And it, it takes a little bit more than just the general revelation to uh, and through nature to know that Jesus Christ is God. So mm-hmm. the historical evidence and the biblical evidence supplements that, but the leap of faith to there being a God is actually a, not nearly as big. And there's a book actually by that title, um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. That mm-hmm. That's one of the books that I read and kind of thinking about it. But I maybe I got the idea from that book where it came out and thought, yes, I agree. It's it's about faith and faith and um, the what the evidence is. There's so much evidence that points to a God and you'd really have to have a lot of faith to be an atheist and find that there isn't a God.
0: Yeah. What was your favorite chapter to write?
1: Oh my goodness. That's a tough question. I can tell you what my least favorite chapters
0: were.
1: <laughs> there's some books that there's some chapters that are really hard to research. Like the origin of the New Testament canon is so confusing. Ah, But um, my favorite chapter to write, oh, I think probably just the uniqueness of the gospel. I just think it's so beautiful. I just, And that's one of the things I really want Christians to read because um, I don't know if a, a lot of Christians misunderstand the gospel. They think it's about working and looking good and doing your best stuff and being on your best behavior and getting on good, God's good side. But the, the beauty of the gospel is no, God has already done everything we need for salvation. And our works come out of gratitude and love for him. So we we will respond with good works, but... So I think writing that chapter was really, it was, it was hard because you want to get it just right. and Mm -hmm. It's such a important topic, but I think that was my favorite. So that's actually, um, no, it wasn't the final chapter. That was going to be the final chapter of the three, um, that I thought were 10 years ago, the last three, but (laughs) we have, yeah, the, the the uniqueness of the gospels, really the only philosophy that has grace as the means by which you get to heaven. And then the the, the transformational power. So I had to split that into two chapters because it just got too long. But yeah, the fact that once you're once you're forgiven, just because of what Jesus did, you are so filled with gratitude and love. If you truly understand what's been done for you, um, that it transforms your relationships. And so I, I the seven ways that it transforms your relationships. So between those two chapters, I think those are my favorite.
0: I wish I kind I'd of read cheap. those already. I haven't gotten there
1: yet. Yeah, those are my last. The last one is Accepting the Free gift. So the, the last three chapters were are kind of that whole thing. Yes, the best is in store. Yeah.
0: So a lot of my interests, you know, I've been a Christian my whole life, and I've been in a little lucky tiny <laughs> bubble. I, it is lucky me, but a little tiny bubble of, like, a young earth creationism, the six days yeah. And a couple years ago, I started to think outside that box a little bit. But mm-hmm. to give you an idea of how tight my box is, I've like have mm-hmm. never had a conversation with anyone who believes in evolution. And you kind of mm-hmm. seem like you believe that God used evolution, like theistic evolution. I do. Okay, so I have questions along this vein, because I, <laughs> I just no, have hardly ever talked to anybody about this. Yeah. And... What was funny is when I heard you on the B, I thought, this lady believes all the same things I do. I like her. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Praise God. I've already gotten uh, uh, some communications with, uh, you know, expressing the, whatever, the disagreement. but
0: Negative communications? Negative
1: negative, just on that, not necessarily against me and what I'm trying to to teach people. But yeah, that there are valid reasons to believe that the earth is just six literal days. And yeah, they haven't read my book. I I told the guy, I'm like, I don't know if it was a guy or girl, but she, um, she or he, yeah, they gave me a bunch of verses that kind of showed that it's had to be six days and it had to be worldwide flood and all this stuff. And I'm like, well, are, are you willing to have other people who believe differently stumble in their, in their faith uh, because of this that it has no really relationship to whether you're saved or not? I mean, obviously, salvation is based on faith in Jesus. It's not based on your beliefs about whether Genesis is six literal days or <laughs> whether there was a worldwide flood. Anyway, so that was kind of my response. It's like, I'm, I don't really want to debate about that. I think everyone can believe what they want to believe. But the way I see God working in my life is over the last 20 years, he's worked gradually in my life. He's given me lessons, and he's kind of tweaked things a little bit at a time, and I've had sin problems, and then over time they change. I just see God as working gradually. He doesn't really do things in a time frame that I would like. I want him to change me like that. And so I don't see why we wouldn't want to think about God acting that way in the natural world, too. I mean, he can easily switch, add new DNA and switch the order of nucleotides. I mean, really, having that happen by accident is completely ridiculous. It, it just—you it would take trillions times trillions times trillions of years for something like to accidentally happen that would cause an organism to get an eye, for example. I mean, that's just so ridiculous. But God could do it. Just put the right DNA in there, and that that animal has now a light sensing cell that you know it gradually develops into an eye. But evolution doesn't work that way because it has to benefit the organism in the current generation. You can't just say, okay, there's going to be an eye. So what do we have to do to get there? It wouldn't ever work that way. The chances of it happening like that is just so little, and especially when eyes first appeared in the fossil record it was just brief in terms of geological time periods in the Cambrian period. So, I mean, just that's, you can't have something like that happen. So, just there's so much evidence in the fossil record and in the way organisms evolve right now. There's no evidence that new species are being created right now. There's none, none. So, I just, I can't imagine that pure chance <laughs> would ever cause it. So, anyway, the, the, the important distinction, therefore, is not believing in evolution. It's believing in God using DNA as his medium for creating and changing organisms. Evolution as a philosophy where things just happen by chance and then happens to benefit the organism, I don't believe in that. I think that's just ridiculous. But it's really about semantics. Evolution is, I just think, such a loaded word when you try to explain that you believe in evolution to a fellow Christian, they just like immediately think that you're like this heretic, and I'm like, no, 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 it's not that I believe in evolution because that con- connotes that God wasn't necessary. I believe that God used DNA, and He used these um, these changes that evolutionists think are just accidental. Just to, oh, by chance, this new um, m- mutation helped the organism. I'm like, that just doesn't happen. All mutations. 99.999% of mutations are deleterious and they will not help an organism. The only way it can help an organism is if God was the one making it. So that's what I believe. And I don't think there's any conflict with with scientific evidence. I think the, the scientific evidence in the fossil record and in, in laboratories is that there is genetic change over time. Most of the time it's not good for the organism. And that if there is a positive change, obviously that's going to help the organism. It's going to live longer and have more babies. I mean, that's just... Yeah, uh, it's kind of like an a captain obvious um you know something that helps the organism is going to help the organism. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's obviously true. God is the one that's creating those changes that help the organism. That's all I'm saying. That's okay. all I'm saying. And I think that he's just as powerful to do that, like to go in and tinker with with DNA. I mean, wow. To be able to create the complexity of the human brain, it's just unbelievable. God is powerful. So I don't think that my beliefs in any way conflict with an all powerful God. It just kind of confirms that the God is all powerful. But I had the same struggle. I remember those days, like, oh, my gosh, can I really reconcile evolution in my Christian faith? And I felt like I was such a traitor. Like, oh, my gosh, I can't admit this to anybody. To... And you know what changed my mind? Was originally the book I had, like, a lot of creationist stuff, it was uh, The Reason for God. T- Tim Keller, who's, like, one of my favorite pastors, yeah, he going to his church in New York City, just opened my eyes to understanding not only the gospel, but also just... Primarily with gospel. <laughs> but anyway, one of the things he mentioned in his book, The Reason for God, and I quote it in my book, is that believing in evolution doesn't necessarily mean you're believing in it as a philosophy, that everything that we know today, all of our thoughts and all of our morals and actions are based on just invisible probability or invisible, unguided chance. I and mean, that's just a complete ridiculous thing. But he said, but you still can believe in evolution just as I was explaining, if you recognize that God is the one that's causing it. Mm-hmm. So when I heard that Tim Keller was okay with it, I was like, all right, I'm going to delete all those parts about <laughs> <laughs> the fossil evidence. You know, they, I do have a lack of fossil evidence. Most, most fossils are the same throughout their time in, in the fossil record, and then they'll change dramatically. So that's like stasis and sudden change. I do keep that. I did keep that in there, but I took out all of the evidence of like um, there's a bunch of fossil evidence that shows like supposedly the transition between whales and land creatures and all this stuff. And there's there's just a lot of missing links like it's really not a good argument for atheists to make that, you know basically what atheists are saying is that we see these um, these skeletons changing gradually from the whale into the land animal, therefore God doesn't exist, and so in my book I spent a lot more time discussing that before I, I had this change of mind, because even if all those little independent steps were documented in the fossil record, you still couldn't say God wasn't necessary I mean, that's, anyway, so I came to the point of just saying, I'm not going to defend the creationist point of view that that claims that god created everything exactly as the final forms we see today on earth I, I i i i started realizing i didn't have to do that i don't know if i'm making myself clear but anyway i i, I just wanted to be completely 100 percent god could be behind the evolution that we see because i think it's the most consistent with secular science
0: do you know who dax shepherd is he's married familiar. to Kristen bell it sounds
1: familiar but i can't say i know
0: well he he hosts a Podcast that's really fun to listen to. It's called The Armchair Expert. And he is a very devout atheist and very into just there's no need for God. It's just, it's all fairy tales. You're just trying to believe that you exist after you die. All that kind of stuff. But what cracks me up is that whenever he's talking about evolution or he's talking about how great human bodies are he cannot mm-hmm. stop himself from saying we were designed to be this way. It, it, yeah. you just Even though this guy who so yeah. has his both feet in this grave, really, he has both feet mm-hmm. there, and he still cannot stop himself from saying we were yeah. designed. Be- there's a lot of,
1: yeah, there's a lot of contradictions in the way atheists talk. Because they do, they talk about nature as being the designer. Nature mm-hmm. did it. You're just like, What does that mean exactly? (laughs) Nature is not, it can't design itself. I know that they talk about just gradual changes over time and then, you know, the survival of the fittest. But yeah, design is so obvious. No one can really refute it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So whenever I have talked about this kind of stuff with people in my family and stuff, these are kind of some of the questions that they ask me. And I say, I don't know. I'm not this smart, oh, so we'll see right if, how yeah. you can do here. So uh, the most common one that I get is, well, so before the fall, there couldn't have been death. So if you had a period of billions of years, things would have had to die. And, uh, right. I mean, a lot of young Earth people say, well, all animals and humans were just vegetarians before the fall. Have you heard Yeah. this? Yeah, no,
1: it's a, that's a really... That area between the creation of animals and the creation of Adam and Eve is really fuzzy for me, too. I mean, I think there's some things we're just not going to completely understand. Mm-hmm. The, the part that helps me intellectually is just understanding that the—and I don't want to get in trouble by saying this— but the period of time in the Bible, which is basically, I think, Genesis 2, when humans were created um, before Genesis 3 in the fall— is more of a theological picture of what happened in the fall. So you basically have to have a preseason, you would say, when everything was as the God designed it. And I don't necessarily know exactly when it happened in Earth's history, but my feeling, this is how I have it in my head, and this is like the first time i ever really said this out loud, so please forgive me <laughs> if it's not fully fleshed out. But my feeling is that God created Adam and Eve and gave them a spirit at the time when they weren't going to die. So they were actually humans, but they weren't us humans. They weren't made in God's image humans. So there are actually two homo sapiens, homo sapiens sapiens, if you want to be really specific, those two individuals, Adam and Eve, were given the first spirit, and they were perfect. They had the ability to sin, but they also had the ability not to sin, and they had the ability to die if they sinned, and they had the ability not to die. So that period of time—I don't know how long it was—that um, they were in the garden was was not forever, I guess. Just I think, um, but I don't know if animals were designed to live forever. So. In the garden, yeah, they didn't live obviously, they grew only there a short time before the fall. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't think it was an actual human being that were living forever and the animals were all living forever together with them. It was um it was a period of time between when God first gave them the soul, which is described in Genesis and created that woman out of the man, that those creatures were, were then able to live forever and then they fell. So it's not like all things had to be living in perfect harmony forever. (laughs) I don't know if that answers your question, but I I do think of it as a specific moment when God put the human soul in them, made them different than just a regular creature. Okay. I think Lewis gets at this kind of idea. It helps me to think about it with Narnia and how there's some animals that speak and some that are regular. So the ones that are speaking are kind of like humans in God's image. And then the non-speaking animals are kind of like just the organisms that humans used to be before God gave them that spirit that made them in his image. And there's archaeological evidence to show that, and you read this in the third chapter, that humans changed. They had been making these really basic stone implements. And then all of a sudden, at this time, when I think God gave Adam and Eve that spirit, they went to like worshiping, evidence of religious rituals making clothes and uh, artistic expression and just a lot more things that indicate that they're made in God's image. So anyway, that's kind of where I see it. I see it as like human beings being organisms only. And then when God made them in his image, it was two individuals that are now the the fathers of all humans on earth. So anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. It might've been completely different than what you asked.
0: (laughs) I think that kind of does. And another thing that I was When I was considering how I wanted to ask this question, I was thinking about, well, if there's no death, I assume that plants, I mean, if everyone's vegetarian, plants have to die to be eaten. So there still had to have been death unless God, for some reason, didn't create organisms to need fuel. And then something suddenly changed, which I don't think is a thing.
1: Yeah. I don't think... When it, the Bible says there was no death, I'm not sure if it relates, I think it just relates to the humans, the ones made in God's image. As much as I want to believe that my dog is going to be in heaven, there's not really the evidence in the Bible that says for sure all animals will live forever, and, and all animals likewise in the Garden of Eden were going to live forever. So I'm not sure about that. But when it says there was no death, um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know much about that topic, but... My understanding is in heaven, which will be an even better garden of Eden, is that there will be no death for humans for sure. And then for animals, I don't believe there will be death either, mainly because I don't want to think that they would die. But also the idea of like, Animals eating each other and that that kind of like uh, you know the lion is going to be laying down with the with the is it with the lamb or with the anyway the, the animals are going to all be friends like <laughs> yeah but anyway yeah the uh, the death doesn't necessarily relate to animals but it, it could I think in Genesis it could relate to the animals but not necessarily the plants I haven't thought too much on this topic so thanks for the question
0: another argument I've heard is that with an expanding universe that should the universe be 13 or 16 billion years old that by now the moon should be way too far away to be doing its job for earth
1: mm, interesting i hadn't heard that one however the first thought that comes to mind is well in that universe does god does he play a part is he keeping the moon in the right place yeah I mean, I I have a I think God is interacting in our world all the time. I mean, He stopped creating after the sixth day, but He still might be acting. In fact, I feel Him acting in my life all the time. Um, it's really really kind of weird, but um, like there's been times when I'm driving and I am like a nanosecond away from an accident, and I my steering wheel changing direction. I mean, I don't want to get too weird on, that, but I know God is still is still working in my life. And I think he's saved me on many occasions. i seriously can't even, I don't know if you would call that a guardian angel. I don't necessarily believe in guardian angels so much as um, I do believe God is is present in our universe and still affecting it in positive and negative ways. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could say that God is, is uh, testing his people. Anyway, I don't want to go off on that topic too much because I don't know much about it. And it could offend people that know much more than I do. (laughs) So anyway, but yeah, if the moon was supposed to be off course by then, I would say, well, why wouldn't God make sure that it's in the right place for us to have the optimal living conditions? So I just, I believe that God is still active. I'm not like a deist. A deist would be someone who says, God put things in motion and things have just kind of, he just left it alone. I'm like, that's, I don't think is true. That was actually all of America's found, not all of them, but m- majority Most of, of America's founding fathers were priests, so Yeah. Mm-hmm. They didn't think God was still active in the world. So I, I disagree with him on that one. Great.
0: All right. <laughs> so I'll try to move on here. Was there a subject in your book that you thought, I'm not really that interested, but it is an all-inclusive apologetics book. So I guess I better put it in there. <laughs>
1: That's a great question, yeah, because that's definitely going to happen. well, fortunately, for me, I love science history, and Bible study, so pretty much all of it was really interesting to me. but if I could choose anything, the I think the hardest one was morality um so I think i'm I'm kind of interested in philosophy, <laughs> but only so much as it relates to Christianity the idea of like thinking about morality and like, Oh, you know, is that proof of God? And that, that was a harder part for me. And it was great because I, by the time I finished researching and writing and getting it, I I came to a much better understanding of it. And I I think it's a good explanation for the existence of God, but not at the beginning. Like I wouldn't go first to that argument that, you know, the universal morality proves that God exists. So I, the, I think as a former atheist, I used to think that was pretty lame. Uh, why can't I have a moral stance on something if I don't believe in God? I mean, it just it seemed really, seemed like it was not a really good proof that God must exist. That chapter was hard for me to write. But, um, and in that chapter, I also talk about some other proofs of God that are more philosoph- philosophical based, like the existence of beauty, the existence of love. Um, and then another chapter on like the, the desire for significance and purpose and also the uh, the extremes in man's nature, both extremely good and extremely evil. Like those are all kind of philosophical, philosophical evidence for God. So those are harder for me because they're a little weaker arguments. They're not so like obvious as the scientific ones. But coming later in the book, I thought they were good because it's kind of like, okay, explanatory. It just Christianity explains what we see in the world, it explains our, our feeling that some things are just not right and some things are just good. Yeah, you're like justice is good why can we say that why why does that have to be the case if there's no god then why why should we be just anyway i'm confusing myself it's so i'm sure i'm confusing the listeners but the point is that there are some examples of it, there's so many examples of looking out at the world as we're living it and being like okay this makes sense because of christianity it totally makes sense that there's extreme evil and extreme good like god man was made in god's image and, Then there's Satan that's trying to, you know, cause all these problems to overthrow God's rule. So it just there's all these things about life that are like, oh yeah, no doubt that makes sense now that I'm a Christian. So anyway, that that chapter was a little harder for me though. Just to get back to your question, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, where am I going with this?
0: So my favorite chapter, I I really liked your creation stuff because that's what I'm most interested in. But my absolute most favorite chapter was on the archaeological evidence for Joseph in Egypt uh, and the exodus yay! and stuff.
1: I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> so
0: what was so exciting to me is that I had never actually thought about Joseph as being an actual real human being. And mm-hmm. yeah,
1: something in that chapter too.
0: made me think about this was a real guy that led a real nation And then they made a real grave for him. And that was so mind-blowing to me. And I thought, I need to read the Bible again and actually think about these people as real humans. Yeah,
1: it is really interesting because when you read the evidence, and that was a last minute edition. I remember I wanted to to kind of beef up my archaeology chapter. And a friend of mine had just gotten back from Israel, and she said, you've got to put in some evidence from the Old Testament. Because it was mine was mainly New Testament, because I'm like, Old Testament, yeah, it's okay if it's just symbolic, you know, it doesn't have to actually be real evidence or real historical events. But when you think about, like, that they were actual people, and God was actually working in history through these people, especially through, like, a Joseph that is so obviously pointing to Jesus in so many ways, which I get to in later chapters, only an all-powerful God could actually have these events take place in real history and not just be myths. And then when you look at that evidence, like the evidence for that statue of like the guy with the coat and like who had the, you know, obviously the near Eastern, he wasn't Egyptian. He had like evidence that it, he had these, um, whatever, what is it called? The the throw stick.
0: <laughs> you said it was like a boomerang.
1: Yes, the boomerang. Yes, exactly. It's like a boomerang shape and in egyptian hieroglyphics that throw stick symbolizes the people from that area in palestine Hmm. so he was obviously like a they didn't call it palestinian back then but he was from that israel jordan syria that kind of area so um he was a powerful ruler he has amazing grave and he was depicted as someone who was from that area and he, ha- it was in this palace, like in, in the area that the Bible describes as where the Hebrew slaves had kind of settled well, they're not slaves yet, but they had settled in that land of Goshen. But anyway, so I'm like, how can people not see this as obviously Joseph? I mean, just as ridiculous how biased against the biblical account people be, because most archaeologists are like, oh, that can't be Joseph. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, what more evidence do you need yeah. that this is Joseph? Especially all the other stuff that indicated a lot of immigrants from the Near East coming into Egypt at that time and then becoming enslaved and and then the evidence of Jericho. But anyway, it's it's just it's the enemies of Christianity are, are great and they're willing to like hide evidence. And so anyway, I'm glad you liked that chapter because I was wondering about whether I, that was one of my longer chapters.
0: Oh, no, it was I, my was favorite. I I was gonna...
1: Oh, good, good, good. Glad to hear it. That's all from a documentary, by the way, that I um, came across in the course of research. It was really well done. Um, Exodus, Exodus, I think is just the, uh, the name of the documentary. It's really good.
0: Okay. I'll have to go back and look those over. So have you ever had your own crisis of faith?
1: Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. All the time. All the time. Yeah. In fact, I'm like, what is my problem? Like, I've been researching the evidence for my faith for 20 years now. And I still have those days when I'm like, am I just an idiot believing that there's a God and that I'm going to live forever? I mean, what am I? <laughs> so yeah, but, um, it happened a lot. It's been happening a lot. I also struggle with depression. So between, you know, struggling with alcohol abuse and depression and whatever, you have those moments when you're just like, God, am I just trying to make myself feel better or are you really there? I'm um, so yeah. So to answer your question, yes, and that, it's just not a crisis of faith; it's it's like crises plural of faith. But I mean, that's what I like about my book because I just have to go read a chapter, and it just I feel so much better. And it's probably not. I mean, obviously, I read the Bible too. The Bible is most important. I'm not going to replace the Bible, but when I return to the evidence, it just makes me feel like okay. So I'm not crazy. I'm not believing it just because I want it to be true. Because when I read the Bible, I just get this great warm and fuzzy feeling. But sometimes I just need to go back and like plant my feet into this evidence. And, and God wants us to worship with our hearts, which I think is where we get this uplift from the Bible. The Bible also is using our mind to worship because it's just a beautiful, I mean, only an all-powerful God could create it. But he also wants us to worship with our minds through seeing the evidence because he's given us so much of it. So I'm um, just anyway. So in those moments when I'm feeling like, OK, my crazy is my faith really s- based on something solid. And that's another reason I chose that subtitle, the rational underpinnings, because I think faith is great. But, it, you know, when you have faith and you don't really have those rational underpinnings, sometimes you can just feel like it's, you know, just a marshmallow you know, fluffy thing that, you know, isn't really solid. So yeah. I'm not saying faith isn't necessary and that you have to think rationally, whatever. I'm just saying it helps It helped me.
0: Yeah, Maybe some people have the, you know, gift of faith and some of us don't. Yeah. So
1: yeah, I, uh, I think I've
0: had some pretty bad depression too. And it's weird how mm-hmm. the doubts in God coincide with the uh, depression. But for me, it, I never didn't think the Bible was true I always had the, right. a hard time with does God actually care about me is he actually here yeah. for me like I see that he works in the world but me really so that was my yeah. problem and I'm still trying to come out of that it's been it's been a oh, tough yeah. last three or four years.
1: Yeah, no, I I completely relate to that. I totally relate to that. And then it's it's in the Psalms, like, why would you have any care about me, Lord? Like <laughs> I'm yeah. such a worm. And um, <laughs> but you know what? You know what helps me when I think about that? God is infinite. That means even if there are an infinite number of people on this planet, He would be able to devote infinite amount of time to each of those infinite number of people. <laughs> so if there are only eight billion people on the planet, He can devote Even more than infinite amount of times for each of those people. So Mm -hmm. God is like, he's got you. He is so focused on you. It's almost like with my children, let's say before I even had my second child, just to make it more like similar, even though there's no way I can make it similar enough because God is infinite and I am not but if all my time and energy were focused on my one baby and I just was like constantly de- doting on him and doing it which is unfortunately not the way it was cuz I was like ah oh, I need to go sleep and somebody else take care of him <laughs> but if I was able to if I were like powerful like god and I had infinite love to devote on that one baby that's kind of a little bit of a picture of how much god loves you Because he's infinite, and and he has time. He's like, I am infinite. I can devote all all my time to just one person at a time. He knows every little thing that we're doing. He knows every little thing that somebody else is going to do that will cause a change in our life. I mean, it's just mind-boggling to think about it. But when I think about that, it makes me realize, okay, I'm not too little for him. I'm not he was willing to come and die specifically for me. So it takes, it's, it's the mind. We really need to talk to ourselves. It's like preaching the gospel to ourselves is so important um, because we can get our mind. We can get, at least I can get myself so down about stuff and that I have to preach the gospel to myself or else I just spiral. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's not all that. Too. Some chemical I've been a very, um, I've been blessed to be a recipient of uh, scientific research benefiting me in the form of anti-depression pills. So I'm I'm totally not only thinking the right thoughts and studying the Bible, but there's also chemical stuff going on. So yeah. it's much more nuanced and complex than just a you know you're down, therefore you're not thinking rightly about God. <laughs> so
0: it's really hard to think right when everything in your being is pulling you in a direction like. It just creates a really terrible cycle.
1: It is. It's really, I've been there. I totally know what you're talking about. It's like, I mean, there is a lot of spiritual impact on emotions that we don't really, we don't see, obviously, because it's spiritual. (laughs) But I think a lot of that stuff happens to me because of a spiritual attack as well. So, and Tim Keller's preached on this a lot, and I've learned a lot from his explanation that it's more than just chemical, it's more than just thoughts in your head, and like something you would go to see a therapist to talk about, and it's also spiritual, so there's like just so much that has, and it's not just depression, obviously, that we all go through different emotions that have a combination of chemical, and fortunately, I don't struggle with anger as much, I mean, I have some friends that just have a really hard time with anger, and that's a lot of times chemical and spiritual, so I mean, everyone has their struggles, but to just say it's yeah, you're not studying your Bible enough, or you're sinning. I mean, there's there's not a simple answer. It's a combination of things. Yeah. So, but it, I find preaching the gospel myself is kind of an essential element in addition to taking antidepressant medication.
0: Do you have any like social media presence or anything you would like to plug? Where can we get your book? That kind of stuff.
1: Oh, thanks. Well, um, it's all centered around my website, shortestleep.com or the sleep dot com also goes there. We also have a Facebook page, <laughs> but I don't really think I have many people on that page. But yeah, if you want to go there, shortest I think Facebook dot com slash short But no, um the book is available in a lot of places so just do a search on the internet amazon um ha- that prices change daily so i learned something <laughs> about amazon interesting Didn't realize that and also christianbook.com i've noticed has some pretty good prices but yeah those okay. are the two main places i know okay yeah hopefully in a lot of languages we'll be uh i currently have translators in 12 languages
0: wow so that is awesome.
1: i know i'm like A little bit, I'm jumping the gun on that because I want the English version to be successful before all the other languages, but I just feel God has called me to do that. He's put people in my life who speak these other languages, so we're getting it going. Yeah. So pretty soon, look for it in global retailers near you. Wow,
0: that's exciting. So is there anything else that you'd like to talk about? Did I miss any important questions?
1: My goodness, you got all of the important questions plus more that I'd never even thought of. So, no, thank you. That was great. Great, very good interviewer. Thank you. Great questions, and I'm 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 very impressed and honored that you are 450 pages into
0: the book. (laughs) Yeah, I really like it.
1: Yeah, you're gonna read the next 300 pages and be like, "Oh my gosh, what a terrible book! I can't believe (laughs) that (laughs) I." No, but the next 300 are the best. So. Stay with it.
0: Cool. Um, Thank you
1: so much, Abigail.
0: You're super welcome. I still have a couple more questions. I have some closers that I ask everyone, just like my openers. So you can talk as long or as quick as you want. So my first one is, do you like The Office or Parks and Rec better?
1: Oh my gosh. The Office. Yeah. I like Parks and Rec too, but The Office is just hilarious. I'm... My husband's so always laughing at me because he watches The Office, like, all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, he's probably watched every single episode probably, like, five or six times each. And I get really mad at him because I'm like, oh, not The Office again. But as soon as I sit down and watch for a few minutes, I'll be like laughing hysterically. He's like, see, you love it.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I
1: was park, but I just haven't seen that one as much.
0: Yeah. I think every time you watch it, there is another layer of jokes that you didn't catch the last yeah, time. Yeah.
1: I think you did. Oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh. It's funny. It's... Anyway, that's how we taught our kids about, you know, the kind of more controversial parts of life. We had them watch The Office. We'd like sit down and say, hey, let's talk about this. (laughs) Are you serious? I am. No, I'm kidding. I'm partly serious, partly. Because, yeah, my kids were um, probably younger than the average kids who watched that show when they watched it. But I like want to talk about everything with my kids. Mm -hmm. I want every little topic to be discussed in our house. Yeah. We could talk about, okay, what was appropriate? What was inappropriate? What did he say that was, like, probably not the right thing to say because of certain, you know, why was it a humorous? Because, you know, you shouldn't say that. So, I mean, those yeah, I, we we had some good conversations based on the office. And to this day, you know, my son knows so many lines from the office. So, yeah. Okay. I'm revealing what a terrible mother I am. <laughs> I don't mean, know. Funny because this just makes me, I just want to say one comment. When I was growing up, my parents were so, they just let me do whatever I wanted. And I was a very good girl. I got straight A's. I was just, you know. and so I'm kind of like that with my kids. And my husband was the opposite. He was always very disciplined and, you know, Christian household. And blah. So I don't know, but it, it depends on your kids. You know, it really depends on your kids because um, my kids could probably be crazy because of my influence on them. So but um but yeah, I definitely want them to be able to talk to me about everything. Yeah.
0: Genesis one through eleven, is this legend or history?
1: Mm. I think it's a combination. God needs to teach people in a way that they will understand. So, like when you read my first chapter about you know the the time flow, how all the theory of relativity demonstrates that depending on the force of gravity and the velocity time flows at different rates. You can see that God didn't want to explain that all. I mean, like he's not going to say, okay, in the beginning I created this extremely dense particle that then exploded into everything that we all know is the universe. (laughs) But he uses uh, things that kind of allude to that, like the waters separating the waters and the waters, this water is the, major byproduct of star formation. So he's using through Moses, through the writer, he's using these symbols and picture that represent realities, um, but might not necessarily be the exact reality. So and I'm already always really careful to just clarify that we're saved by faith alone in Jesus. So whatever we believe about Genesis being allegory or actual history and, you know, did Eve really come out of the rib of Adam, or was that just a symbol of her being kind of on the side, like his side partner? Those are all things we, I don't think we'll we'll really know, but I mean, it's kind of I don't think it means that we're bad Christians if we believe it's just a representative, a symbolic. So I don't know. The answer to your question is I don't know, <laughs> but I do think there's a lot of symbolism used because God, he's not going to just explain exact detail. I mean, this is for people 5,000 years ago who first read it. They're not going to understand the modern science about the big bang and the mm-hmm. what the formation of stars and all that stuff. It's uh yeah. And the fact that the earth, um, on that day when you could see the heavens, that was when the atmosphere of the Earth in geological time was clear. So you could separate day from night. Whereas before that, it was so dark on the Earth that the atmosphere was so thick because plants hadn't produced enough oxygen. So that would be a perspective from the Earth. People on the Earth looking up and seeing the stars, even though people weren't there yet. It was Basically, God was the one that- it's kind of looking out from the earth at that point, from our perspective of what would be our perspective and seeing that there was day and night. So it wasn't because the earth and the sun were finally created and so you could have day and night. It was because you could actually see day and night from the earth's perspective in terms of the, the clarity of the atmosphere. Anyway, I'm actually giving a much more complicated answer to a simpler <laughs> question. But the point is, is that it's both true and not true in the sense that it's both history and and also, symbolism that God is using to explain what is happening from a perspective that humans otherwise wouldn't be able to understand if He gave us too much detail. Sure. So, Genesis 1 through 11, kind of a combination.
0: Yeah. Sorry that it but. <laughs> that's okay. That's exactly how <laughs> I answered the question, too. Remember when I said yeah. you believed all the same things I did?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that if you want it to be exactly true, it, It would be a stumbling block because there's a lot of things that just don't make sense in light of um, scientific evidence. So anyway, I don't think that God is any less powerful if it's not exactly the way it is written. And I don't think our faith is any less real if we're um, not believing it's actual events. But, But I do believe there was one Adam and one Eve. And the Bible talks about the first Adam and then the second Adam is Christ. And so I do think Adam and Eve are real people. And there is scientific evidence that all humans are descended from one woman and one man. My dad did, debates me on that one. My dad, he my dad read my book several times, and he's a super smart man and very he knows a lot about theology. And he's more like, I don't think Adam and Eve could be back that far, like a hundred thousand years or so, is what the evidence points to is the first man and woman. And he's like, no, the Bible talks about generations, and I don't think a hundred thousand years is way too long. So I'm like, okay, dad, I don't know, but we still we agree to disagree on that one. It's, yeah. I don't think it makes a difference. I think I don't think the Bible clearly says these are the only people that lived between Adam and whatever the the next generation. Maybe they maybe it does, but I don't think it's big enough to. It, yeah, it's not going to destroy my faith. Sure. <laughs> so,
0: Do you have the time slash energy to go over a couple more questions about evolution in this creation?
1: I could answer the questions all day on this topic. Okay,
0: can you give a brief? It's very difficult to understand and very difficult to make it brief. But the, the relativity of time and gravity uh, and that thing, I don't understand okay.
1: it. you <laughs> not forgetting it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's very difficult to explain. And it's a really difficult concept to understand. But basically, Einstein's what used to be theory of relativity is now law of relativity. Um, expresses this relationship between time and the speed of light. That you're going at and gravity. So at the speed of light, if we were like to get on a rocket that was going as fast as the speed of light, time would not even flow, which is just bizarre. like I don't I'm not sure I can explain that but <laughs> so traveling at the speed of light there is no time flow. And then the other thing is so as you approach the speed of light time flows slower. So the something that would take a year on Earth would take a lot longer. So I'm not sure how that would work, but basically um, all of our biological processes are based on these laws of physics and all these equations and stuff. It just means that it would take longer for whatever to happen based on the fact that there's this velocity is so fast. And then the other thing that changes the flow of time is gravity. So gravitational pull will slow down time. So time passes more slowly on the sun. And I remember I was trying to explain this on the, the, the B podcast because I was, like, totally getting it. Ah, I was totally messing up. And I, I can't even explain it very well anytime, but yeah. I could probably do a little better job. So on the sun, <laughs> time flows slower by a factor of, I think it's 2.12 in every million. So every million seconds that pass on Earth, a million two seconds pass on the sun. And so because of that, you can actually see that the light that comes from the sun is stretched a little bit, almost like that sound you hear when you have a, an ambulance go by and you hear it is kind of sounds different when it's coming because the, the sound waves are approaching you at a certain velocity versus um, when they're leaving you, they change. Anyway, the sound waves change because of the, the, the speed of the truck. So um, they can actually measure that. And it turns out to be true that the time flows slower on the sun by this 2.12 parts in one million seconds. So anyway, using what they call the cosmic background radiation, which is the, the radiation that was emitted at the time of the Big Bang, like within the first two seconds of after the Big Bang, they, they can, they've identified this cosmic background radiation, which they can see. And I'm not sure how they see it. <laughs> I just know that they can see it and measure it. But it's the exact same wavelength as it was at the beginning of the universe. And based on that, they've discovered that there's a million million factor between the time at which time flows, excuse the rate at which time flows now, as the rate at which time flowed at the beginning of the universe at the moment of the Big Bang. So if you take six million million days, so for every six days now, it would be six million million days. Or the other way around. For every six days back then, that's it. You can tell, okay. this is just mind-blowing. It's I can't very difficult. That's why it took me a while I had to write it, because I could never explain it, really. <laughs> but anyway, for every six days at the beginning of the universe, it would be the equivalent of six million million days. Um, billion billion, excuse me, billion billion, it's quite different, days um, from the perspective of Earth now. And that translates into 16 billion years so it's um it's kind of bizarre that the scientists have found that the age of the universe is around 14 billion years and based on the cosmic background radiation 6 days would be the equivalent 6 days at the beginning of the universe is the equivalent of of 16 billion years um in today's earth years. So it's very similar 16 billion and 14 billion based on 6 days and 16 billion days are basically the same, depending on whether you're measuring time from the point of view of the beginning of the universe, when it was really, really dense, and um, or whether you're measuring it in today's uh, Earth-based time. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of like weight, you know, how you weigh a certain amount on Earth. Mm-hmm. But if you're on the moon, which has a smaller gravitational pull, you weigh a lot less. So you're still the same mass, but your weight is different. It's the same with time. Time actually is relative to the force of gravity acting on you. So at the beginning of the the universe, from God's perspective, it was super, super dense. And so six days were the same as today's 16 billion years. It's really bizarre. I can't quite comprehend it. Yeah. But it's a law of physics. A law of physics that has been tested and Mm -hmm. confirmed.
0: So I have, I found this page where you're saying, so the first day is about 8 billion years. And oh, yeah. then the second day is about 4 billion years. And so, like, with the change of the density and the gravity of the Earth, so does the length of time change? Yeah?
1: Yeah, it's basically exponential. So yeah, okay. Yeah, the, the first day amount of time is is you know eight billion years and then it gets exponentially smaller so then half of that and then half of that and, and gerald schroeder who is the physicist from mit that explained this in his book to me <laughs> i recommend it if anybody really wants to get explanation that's not just you know boiled down and his book is called the science of god it's kind of an older book like it's one of the books i read early on in my Research And I was always looking for other people to talk about this argument because I thought it was so amazing and impressive. But for some whatever reason, I, I, I don't know why nobody else really wrote about it. But I, I think it's really convincing.
0: It is really yeah. interesting. And yeah. it, is there anything in this with the beginning of the Earth's time being a little different? So I can only understand time as it relates to ageing. So, would this have anything to do with Adam, you know, supposedly living 900 years? Oh, yeah.
1: Partly. Um, I think more the reason for that, and I don't even mention this in the book, is the purity of his genetics. Okay. Because I really think, and they've done a lot of research into aging and what causes us to age, Um, And a lot of it is mutations in certain parts of um, the DNA. It makes sense from that perspective. Not so much the relativity of time, because they were created when time kind of flows the same amount, same speed as it does today on Earth. More just the purity of their genes, and they hadn't had these mutations that cause people to die earlier. And then lately, in the last hundred years, we've kind of reversed that a little bit because we've gotten better medicine and so forth. But originally it was um, people live longer because they, you know, their genes were not quite as uh, mutated, which happens in Mm -hmm. a fallen world.
0: My next question is, do you believe that there are aliens?
1: Ooh, no. If God can create life on planet Earth, he can create life anywhere. So, um, I would not, I would not deny it. I like to think that maybe when we get to heaven and I don't think about this very often (laughs) to tell you the truth, but I wouldn't put it past an all powerful God to have people from all different planets, you know? I mean, the chance that there could be other life forms by accident, I mean, the chance that we exist is like pretty much infinitesimally small. I mean, without the interference of a creator, But on multiple planets, really, really infinitesimally small within the same universe. Um, But with God, who is all powerful, I wouldn't put it past him. And he probably appeared to all of them as Jesus in, in different ways. It would be kind of cool.
0: Well, my final question is who or what inspires you to be your best self?
1: Ooh. Who or what inspires me to be my best self? Oh, wow. So, okay. Those of you out there that are married might want to say your husband. But I have to confess, it's my children. And I think most parents who have had children... Can see that I'm being truthful. Because, I mean, the difference between the love that you have for your spouse and the love you have for your children is pretty big. It's really terrible to say that because I love my husband. But yeah, your kids, I mean, you just, are, it's like an amazing force of love. So my kids pretty much would inspire me to be my best person. Yeah, I just love them so much. I would really do so much. I would do anything for them. So, I mean, just the willingness that God has to sacrifice his son for us is more understandable if you see him as our father willing to do that for us so, again yeah, that's and then for those of you out there in the audience that don't have kids there are a lot of other kids in the world that you can love just as much as your own if they were biological it might happen to be biological but i have a lot of friends that have adopted children or just you know, other friends have children or their nephews or nieces or um, a best friend's child. There are lots of children to love that need love. So I, yeah, I don't limit that just to my own biological children, but just loving that intensely and putting that person's well-being ahead of your own. It's very motivating.
0: Great answer.
1: Thank you. But thank you so much, Abigail. I'm
0: so honored that you reached out. Yes. Well, thank you. I was, I thought I'm just gonna throw caution to the wind and email her and i'm glad it worked out yeah this has been really really cool. yeah it totally
1: good i'm very i'm very glad it was a very very cool interview cool. good questions i'm like ah my brain is hurting i don't know how to answer those. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great to have that opportunity to see if i could come up with something <laughs> cool. Cool. But, uh, yeah, reach out with any other questions if something comes to mind. Okay.
0: It's
1: great to talk to you.
0: You too. Have a great trip in your European
1: travels. Thank you. The adventure continues.
0: (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.